While you were standing in your circle outside today, I looked, I watched. I had to go into the library for something and um, saw you out there in the sunshine, in this large circle just standing. And as I saw the whole circle, of course, there's the particular individuals I noticed, people that I either know very well or some of you that I'm getting to know or some of you that I haven't got to know yet. And I was also struck by just all these bodies standing. Bodies standing. How do you deal with having a body? Being a body, being in a body, or being something apart from the body, whatever it is, whatever way you think it, it works. That's even a very good question and something that the Buddha pointed to. He said that normally, you know, we have something like a body and we either think we're in it. You can, you can see which one fits for you. How do you conceive of this thing? How does it, how does your mind, what does your mind do with it? Are you in it? Do you think you're something that's inside it? You're not the body, but you're something in it. Or do you think you're something apart from the body? Ah, oh, yeah, I know I'm not the body. I'm something else, something more, whatever. Or do you think of yourself as the body, yes? Yep, this is who I am. I'm this one standing here in the circle. And maybe you've never even thought about these questions. It, it sort of take it for granted. We just have our view of whatever it is. Or, he said, the fourth one is, we take it as mine. We think we're in it, we are it, it's mine, or I'm something apart from it. That's what the mind can do. The mind's always looking for, for our location, in a way. And he says, all of those ways of conceiving of it are a misunderstanding. In it, apart from it, it's mine. Or it, it is me. I'm as it. I'm as the body. So here's a little, that's just a little intellectual kind of play to start with. And even if your head doesn't get around that, for years I would read those things in the suttas and think, huh? You know? What's that got to do with sitting on my bum, paying attention to my breathing? Actually, it has a lot to do with it. Those ideas, we will be carrying one or more of them, not knowingly, unconsciously, and relating to our body from that. So sometimes a good look at the view that we're carrying about it. You know, we might have got to the place where we realize, well, I can't be the body because this is going to die. This is going to... So I must be something else. I must be something bigger or more. Or we might think, well, I'm not the body, but I'm something in it. Some everlasting substance inside it. So let's bring that analysis right down to earth. So it's not just an intellectual play. It's a fun, it's a fun intellectual play. If you like intellectually playing, it's an interesting one. But let's bring it right down to this. How is it going? How are you dealing with it today? And first, second, third day can be a lot arising in the body. Body shows up. When we sit still long enough, body shows up. that okay by you or would you rather your spiritual journey didn't have to include this kind of clunky sometimes it's clunky sometimes it hurts certainly doesn't seem to do what I tell it it doesn't conform to how I want it to be if you were going to design your own body for yourself you know probably have one that 
worked a little better in the bits that don't work very well and, you know. Sometimes we would really like our spiritual journey to be apart from the body. And you might not even have had that thought, but just think when you're on your cushion and your knee starts to hurt and you go, damn, this is in the way. I wanted peace. I wanted harmony. I didn't want pain. And we're resisting and pushing and fighting and tensing and... Then that's it. We're saying, no, this isn't part of it. Transcendence or my sense of the goal or the sense of the view I've had from my own experience or what's promised to me from the teachings. What's that got to do with all of this? Sometimes we would like to rise above and actually um, probably most of us in our life have risen above the body. It's a very common um, part, uh, pastime is not the right word, a common result, actually, for most, I would guess most of us here, a common result either through our marvelous but normally exclusive development of valuing the head center, valuing the intellect, the education that we have. This is not knocking that at all. It's a beautiful development, an important development. But it can have us starting to dwell in this upper portion or this front upper portion normally, <laughs> that front part of the brain. Sometimes we rise above because there have literally been so much impact to this sensitive organism through accidents, through shock, through impingement, that the only place that was okay was get up, get up here. It's not safe down there. Don't feel good down there. Sometimes it may not be that. It may be simply that actually to come fully into body, inhabit this life, it hurts sometimes when we're dwelling fully present in head and body. We're impactable, we're open, we're vulnerable. And one way, you know, we don't like to feel pain. Nobody likes to feel pain. We fear it. We fear the impact of it. You can see the fear of it as you sit. Something starts to hurt. You might notice the resistance Right, But what's in that? Very often there's a fear of, oh God, I don't want this to continue. I'm afraid if it will continue. Does it mean something about me? Does it mean something about my body? We're very, often very scared of having a human form, being a human form, because it is prone to impact and disease and just... Discomfort, you know, it gets too cold. The, the degree of temperature that we're really happy to live within as a human being is really small. I can't remember, maybe some of you know. It's a really small number of degrees uh, that, the body, that the body can feel okay to operate at. Really small number of degrees. We're very sensitive in this environment, as this environment it's really a delicate thing, and we sometimes don't like to know that too much because we realize how dependent and connected we are in this extraordinary manifest world. You know, the temperature just has to get a few degrees hotter, and we can't hang here. It's a humbling prospect. We're more intimately woven than we sometimes like to believe. So that's sometimes where we rise up. We want to get out. So maybe you know yourself as someone who lives up here more. And we certainly see it when we sit, don't we? We're mindfulness of breathing, whole body breathing. Okay. Oop. And there we are again. 
up in the top, top floor, up on the top floor. There's a nice quote from um, James Joyce, Irish author, where he talks about one of his characters. He says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. That just the way we're not even, not only not up here, we're just hovering at the side somewhere or out back here somewhere. And sometimes you can, as we get more clear discernment of what's going on, you can actually perceive that happening. You know, when you're on the spot, let's say, you're in a group meeting and you realize, oops, you might be a little frayed, and you feel yourself just at the side, not quite here, just at the back somewhere. feels a little safer. So we can be ambivalent about this coming into earth, coming into form. But the cost, if we don't, is living at a distance. Living at a distance not only from our body, that's painful. Living at a distance not only from manifestation, that's painful. But the, the body is a doorway to our depth. The Buddha talked about the body as, you know, the whole Dharma can be revealed. The whole depth of what is spoken about in the teachings of awakening from suffering is revealed through this fathom-long body. It's right here. It's not somebody else's body, not a better body, not one that's well fixed up or looks the way you think it should look or has the bits working that you would like working that aren't working very well. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, wait till you get to my age and I'm only middle-aged. You know, there's less and less bits that completely work like they did 20 years ago. They just are. It doesn't, it's not quite working It's not designed to keep working, actually. And that's not a mistake. But if we let it in, it's something very touching, something that reminds us of our humanity, brings us down, touches the humility, the, the humility, that word of uh, the hum, the, I never know how to say it properly, the I don't want to confuse it with humus, but what's the, which is what I do, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Humus, is that it? What is it, the Greek of, of the earth? The humus, right? The earth. Not the humus, which is also similar, right? But this, this earthy, this earthy um, material, it's kind of can be denser at times than these more kind of faster, brighter realms that can happen in the head center. And this doorway, that the cost is living at a distance, yes, from the body, yes, from the world, yes, from each other, actually, when we're not fully fully here. We're also at a distance from each other. We're also at a distance from the depth of who and what we are. And we miss that. We feel bereft. We feel the loss of that. So I just want to put a small parenthesis here. The Dharma isn't only about coming into the body. It's not the whole story. But in this first foundation of mindfulness, it is the vehicle, it is a... Uh, necessary place for the contemplation of things as they are. So, normally speaking, we, through this wish to not quite be here in this as this form, we fall into two extremes, and probably both of both of them you'll recognise. We might veer more one to one than the other, but um, the extreme of completely believing it's who I am, um, glorifying the body, indulging the body, trying to have all the best sense pleasures of the body, 
um, trying to get the best set of concepts about your body, you know, trying to get the right bit of flesh here and the right weight here and the right one of these over here. Getting a little obsessed with the body, you could say. Or the other extreme of complete disregard. Complete disregard. Ah, who cares about body? Stop taking care of ourselves properly. Stop maybe not exercising, not eating properly, not really respecting the preciousness of this form as a vehicle for waking up, for being, for connecting. And the Buddha, in his marvelous example of humanity, fully inhabited both extremes big time. Right? He, did, he did it. He got that all together, that whole bodily sense pleasure piece. So I think I mentioned that last night. And when he realized that didn't do it, that he went to the other extreme and became an ascetic. Where there is actually a disregard for the body. He was doing practices, meditative practices, but it was there was a lot of starvation of the body, disregarding the body in the belief that what was beyond that was apart from that. Such that when he... Um, you know, got to his full extreme of the disregard for the body, the story is that the back ribs showed through at the front. Right? He was down to... The, I'm not sure if this is exactly true, but it's the way the story is portrayed. He was down to one grain of rice a day. I think that's to show you the extreme. And he woke up and went, hold on a minute. This doesn't do it either. This complete disregard... And that's when he made the resolve, um, well, he had, a, he had a memory first of being a young boy and something about that memory of some ease and mindfulness that he was naturally in contact with at that time. He remembered that and then he said, okay, I need to practice a different way here. And he, he got a cushion. Right? As of the ascetic, when he was disregarding the body, he had no cushions to sit on. He was a diehard Right. This time he got a cushion made out of kusala grass, right? Some grass, packed it together, had a little cushion. His friends thought he was a complete cop out, right? His his diehard buddies. And this is where this notion of the middle way comes, the middle way between extremes, and in this case, the extreme of complete identification with body as who I am, or complete identification with body as not who I am. And do you recognize either of those? Do you go more one way or the other? The obsession with bodies these days is kind of painful. I feel myself pulled into that when I go into the spa, my local spa, and look at the magazines on the top shelf. And, you know, there's, there's a, a culture where the detail around body is fixated upon actually it's quite painful to see such that somebody who's on the front one week she's got it all together next week or sometime later next time I go in the spa there's an arrow pointing at some fat on her bum or something it's kind of it's like wow wow she's got it in the wrong place now you know it's kind of and I, and I laugh, and it's laughable, but I also feel the shock of it, the way the mind can fixate. I mean, it's, it's good to be able to laugh at us, because we probably all recognize that in some way. But that fixation, you know, the mind, this, from this vast, mysterious existence, the mind kind of hones in whoosh, to that arrow. And the Buddha wasn't talking about that. I don't think they had magazines like that at that time, luckily for them, I would say. Probably other issues. But he said, whatever you ponder upon and think about frequently, that will become the direction and the inclination of your mind. Right? So if we keep turning in that direction, that's where the momentum goes. That's where the groove of the mind gets worn. And that's the groove we keep falling into. 
And you see that here, not just about body. You see the grooves you fall into in the mind. Whoomph, there I am again. Whether it's a groove of self-judgment, there's been... I, if I have time, I'll say something about that. It would be uh, important to devote a whole talk about the way that that keeps us confined and limited. And if I don't manage to speak about it tonight, then for those for whom that seems... Uh, up and relevant, who'd like a little more input around that, I'll, I can do that tomorrow. I have lots of pieces of paper here that are interesting things to possibly read to you about body. I'll see which ones come through. Yeah, in the um, in the teachings, actually, in the Buddhist teachings, there's a very interesting tension with regard to body. And the tension is that the Buddha's really clear about not glorifying it. Really, he says, it's just uh, one of the metaphors. He says, think of the body like an anthill. Right? An anthill. I don't know if in England we have very interesting anthills, but in Australia they have really interesting anthills. But anthills, it's a, it's a thing that the ants have kind of built up over time, as you probably know. So think of it like an anthill. It's something that's built up out of porridge and rice that's come into existence through a mother and a father. So basically, he's saying it's compounded. It's all these conditions have had to come together, and whoop, there's this anthill I call me. And he says, and it's prone and subject to decay and dissolution and death. So there's this very, uh, there's no illusion there. It's very bare in a way, very basic. It's like it's very physical. It's like don't get excited about it. It comes together and what comes together falls apart. And the tension between that and, and actually the reflections go further, especially, I think, designed for practitioners who are very plagued by sensual or sexual desire. A lot of reflections on the unattractiveness of the body, right? Which in the beginning, I, at the beginning I really liked when I was hearing teachings, it was a big relief, it's like, phew, I don't have to get all that together. And then after some time it was like, oh, what a killjoy, you know? But actually the wisdom of it is not about a killjoy. The wisdom of this seeing the unattractiveness, and basically it's things like reflections on, yeah, if you take all the aggregate parts of the body, there's... There's this list in the teaching, pus and bile and snot and feces and, you know, it kind of goes on and on. Like, oh, okay. You don't get quite so excited about kind of what's inside it or what comes out of it or, you know. Oh, okay, that does something to the sexual desire. <laughs> and it's not trying to just put a dampener on everything. It's more getting it in proportion. It's more seeing what is it we're actually reifying and building up as something that can be my refuge. So the tension between that way of perceiving and the um, recognition of the preciousness, actually. The preciousness, as I've mentioned, of this is the place to wake up. This body, not someone else's, not a better one. This, this is the place to wake up. Such taken further in the Tibetan text or in one of the Tibetan teachings where the preciousness of being born as a human, you know, of all the possible, so in this cosmology, for the Tibetan cosmology, of all the possible ways something can come into being, of all the possible ways something can take birth in the world. This is a very fortunate way to be born because this is 
a place where you can awaken. Right? And there's metaphors for how rare that is in that cosmology. You know, it's really a good fortune, apparently. Really a good fortune. You can look further into that if you're interested in the metaphors and stories around that. So to take care of it, to not disregard, to feed it, to clothe it, to let it rest, to not push it. Someone today working with, yeah, not pushing the body, not pushing us, not making it be the thing to fulfill my idea of how life should be. Sometimes then we push it, we work too hard, we... We don't rest properly. So, bringing it back to the cushion, contemplating body as body. And today I spoke a little bit already about body as body showing up as sensation. We're not usually content with body as body. What happens is the mind comes in on that. And that's fine. It's not a problem, except it gets stuck together. So, knee is burning, fear arises. Then there can be another layer. Now there can be another layer of judgment. Oh, I shouldn't be afraid. I'm supposed to be with body as body. Right? And then there's judging the judgment. And off we go. Contemplating body as body is to know it in its very basic form. Right now, what is your body as body before your mind tells you stories about it? It's probably either feeling, you feel the hardness of the sit bones on the seat maybe. (coughs) (coughs) You might feel the softness of your flesh right now. There might be some pain some of you. Some of you are having pain that arises from the meditation, right? Some of you have chronic pain, but it's not about the meditation, it's there all the time. Sometimes the pain that arises in meditation or sitting here is, yeah, it might be a result of the way we're sitting, and we can do something about it. Other pain that arises is what is called Dharma pain, where coming to the surface and starting to be felt fully in consciousness is the pain of our life, really. The pain of the way we've carried ourselves, the way we've tried to manipulate and avoid and push and pull. The pain of our life can show up in various aches and pains. In fact, that this does fit with this um, true story, which I'd like to read you. As I said that, I was reading you a story. Some of the postures changed. Did you hear? There was more movement in the horse. Like, oh, goody, a story. <laughs> I don't know if that's why you move. That's story time. I can get comfortable now. Just wondering if it's the right moment here. Yeah, I think it is. So it's it's quite a shocking story. It's a story of a woman in a hospice as she was dying. A woman called Hazel. A woman, Hazel, came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone and in a great deal of pain. She had judged so much, so many, so often, that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks, her isolation and pain increased, until one night she came to the point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs, or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear how her intense holding had created such intense pain. 
Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered. She let go and she died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and her legs, she began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the ten thousand in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of herself as an Inuit woman, lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, her hips, legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each, dying beside the others. She experienced the ten thousand sufferings simultaneously. Then this bit's what she said. The pain was beyond my bearing, she said. I couldn't stand it any longer, and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it just wasn't my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to the, all the others in pain in the hospital. She asked after them constantly, and the room became a place where the nurses would become because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed, the grandchildren she had never met, the hearts she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, her room became a place of healing, of finished business, and of universal care. There's an invitation to know body as body when we really do, we actually understand it as beyond our sense of what we have already thought about, what we've already conceived and imagined about ourselves. And it doesn't just have to happen through pain, right? We're good at talking through about pain here, and there is pain, and we do have to work with it, and it is a doorway. And sometimes there's pleasure. Sometimes there's pleasure that arises in meditation. And it can, it is something that actually can deepen and be cultivated over time. That too, it's very interesting. Pleasure arising in practice, interestingly enough, is also an edge for people. Pain is an edge. Pleasure is an edge. Sometimes the pleasure also takes us beyond what we've known, what we're used to. It stretches us, it opens us. It f keeps inviting us to let go of the limited senses of ourself that we may already have. Body can often be very neutral, it's neither very painful and it's neither very pleasurable and it's kind of ordinary and we ignore it. And this whole territory of the neutral body, the body that's not calling out really loud, saying, ah, and it's not calling us through pleasure, is a vast territory that we overlook. And getting a sense for and a taste for what is apparently more neutral is a really important part of contemplating body when it's 
very ordinary. You're just with your breathing. It's not painful. It's not pleasurable. And you just hang out there. Mind at first gets bored with the neutral. Think, oh, neutral, nothing juicy here. I'm not working on any issue. I'm not having an insight. It's very neutral. Can we hang out with the neutral quality of sensation? There's a lot on offer when we recognize the boredom and we come closer to what at first appears completely bland, that it has nothing to offer me, and I habitually just ignore it. That's ignorance, actually. It's a good definition of ignorance. We ignore what doesn't pull or call. There's a lovely story um, from a monk from, I think, the 14th century, Rhea Khan. was a bit of an unconventional kind of monk. I see somebody smiling who knows his poetry, I think. And Rhea Khan, um, such was his relationship with his body that the story goes that at, yeah, in the morning when he woke up, he carefully took from his robes the lice that had been hanging out there in the night and he carefully took them off and put them on a rock in the sun to warm up. So he took the right, the rice, the lice off and put them on the rock to warm up. I think, oh, that's very nice, very respectful of body and all of that. The story goes on that then when evening comes, the sun goes in, he takes the lice back off the rock and puts them back, puts them back on his robe. What must his conception of his body have been? certainly wasn't one that it's, oh, don't touch me, don't impact me. And we don't have to compare ourselves to that and feel ourselves, or, or we might think he's completely bonkers, we've already written it off in our mind, oh, that's some sign of, you know, not being quite here. But to see what is it, what is it that makes it hard for us to, yeah. Why is it we conceive of this body just ending with this flesh here? So convinced it's who I am. So convinced the things about my body are who I am. Such that people, some people say, I'm too scared to sit in the meditation hall today because my stomach's gurgling. I know one person, long-time meditator, there's a strong identification with the body in such a way that it's not okay for her. A lot of shame arises when the body just, stomach just goes in the meditation. Who's like, mustn't do that. Mustn't show I've got a stomach. Mustn't make noise. It just goes And it's really painful for her. Such is the conditioning around that. One time I was um, teaching a retreat and we were doing a standing outside. It's something I like to do a lot uh, on a retreat. And this man, who was also a long-term practitioner, I didn't actually notice what happened. He told me the next day. It completely passed me by. But I was just about to ring the bell to end the standing. And he passed wind. All right, so I was just about to ring this bell, this very silent magnificent standing circle of beings practicing for awakening. I was just about to ring the bell. He passed when I didn't notice. He said, he came to the group meeting the next day, he said, I'm so sorry. What did you think? You know, he said, I've been obsessing about this the whole day. He said, did you think I completely disrespected the Dharma? Right? And it was, it's like, wow, how did you get from passing wind to the fear that I would judge you for disrespecting the Dharma. It's like, what is being identified with it? What, what's going on there with our mind? That this bodily life that's not quite in our control, it does things, it gurgles, it makes funny noises, it, you know. How seriously we think it's me and who I am. And we don't, it's not really ours. And we, you know, we have millions of other inhabitants in the gut for a start. Bacteria, we call them, makes them sound a little less important. 
Well, there's a lot of, lot of guys in there doing a lot of work on our behalf, on their behalf, you know, but it's not so different in the end. One friend, he says, he has to cultivate a kind of ongoing symbiosis with uh, the fact of what is politely called athlete's foot, which is also a bunch of other creatures that are living in his feet. And they, they try and maintain a, some kind of balance where he has enough tea tree oil that they don't completely overtake his foot, but they never completely go either. And he says, yeah, if it was a... He's, his joke is he, if it was a democracy, he wouldn't stand a chance, right? If there's, a lot of, there's a lot of beings there. There's a lot of life there. There's a lot... It's not ours. It's not ours, which doesn't mean a callous disregard. It means starting to lighten up a little bit around it, to lighten up. And we can come to know that through that very direct contact. It's like, yep, it's not in my control. It really isn't in my control. If it was in my control, I'd probably, as I've said before, design some parts differently. You know, it's not in my control. It's moving, it's aging, it's moving towards death. I would make that process a little different if it was in my control. It's not mine. It's of the nature. We know that intellectually, but we don't always live that. It's of the nature like those trees out there, like those rabbits out there. You seen those rabbits? They're small ones. I haven't been out for a while. There's small ones that match the big ones now. Happened since I last looked. This, this might be interesting for you. I won't read the whole thing. It's from the suttas, from the texts of the Buddha. And he, again, very practical, very, very practical. He's <laughs> listing. I hope I've... Oh, didn't bring the right bit. Oh, well, I'll have to remember it. That's not the right piece of text that I wanted to bring you. Um, he lists the benefits of mindfulness of body. It's very practical. He said, this is what you're signing up for. And let's see if I can remember a few. He says, when you cultivate mindfulness of body and practice it repeatedly and cultivate it over time, you can expect ten benefits, he says. And they say, what ten benefits can we expect? And he says, you can uh, become a conqueror of fear and dread. And fear and dread will not assail you with regard to the body. All right? So even though at first as we come closer to body, we might feel the fear component of I'm going to get sick, it's going to, whatever it might be, or this pain's going to continue for the whole retreat. He says you become a conqueror of that. You see things. Can you hear when the helicopter's going? Okay, so let the helicopter go. says, coming into relationship with things as they are, body as body, not all my ideas about it or what should happen and what shouldn't happen, but as it is. We see it as it is. The fear that arises in relation to bodily life doesn't find a foothold, doesn't find a place to land so much. He says, you can become a conqueror of fear and dread with regard to the body a conqueror of discontent with regard to the body, the discontent that we have. Anyone here ever had any discontent about their body? Yeah, which is born out of the view that it's mine. When it's mine, it should please me and be flattering. And But the, view, the discontent with the regard to the body also can drop away. There's eight other benefits you can look at the text if you want to at the end of the retreat. Many benefits to mindfulness of body. So I think I'll finish with another story um, to end the talk this evening.
I read this story very regularly and it never fails to um, have meaning and relevance for me. So some of you will have heard this before and it's from one of my teachers and friends, good Dharma friend, Ajahn Sachito, who's the uh, abbot of the Chithurst Monastery in Sussex, Sussex, Hampshire border. And this is from a very long time ago. It's about 20 years ago. He gave a talk in Bodhgaya in India. Uh, he was, I don't know some of you have been to that retreat in the Thai temple there in January. And this is 20 years ago. He was doing pilgrimage through India and passed by the temple where there's a was a retreat happening at the time and slept the night there and gave a talk there. And this is uh, an extract from that. He says, Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit. Pain, I would think. Be with the pain. That will do it. Here I am, being with the pain. Being with the pain, it's not working. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Ah, that's better. Oh no, back again. One cushion, two cushions, three cushions, four cushions. Angle the cushions to the left, angle the cushions to the right. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. For five years I had this pain. And I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. It's a very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually realized it, except what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. Or I tried to think pain is bad, make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into I do not like. One day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle, wriggle. Oh God, why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, what about the middle way? Hours go by. Two hours. Three hours. Three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it. And it came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess, eventually. Ignorance does get tired after a while and has to take a, a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it without the let's open to it and make it go away or let's open to it and that will make me go into some kind of cosmic space. This might be more relevant for those of you, these bits who've practiced some more before. But I just sat with, oh, all right, then I began to see and feel this sensation throbbing away. And it began, to, it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that, and then there's this terrible kind of, no, no, no feeling going on. Does that ring any bells? Oh, resistance, he says. Then with that, once he realized that moment, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body, bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do wrong? I'm just sitting here trying to be peaceful. Go away, pain. And this kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to this sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation, but I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret, 
for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way. And I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been what, told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind's eye of a dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf looking at me saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and harshness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing, me and this pain, me and the pain, and then the whole thing just dissolved very gently and the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you, finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. This business was finished. So just before we end, I want to point out that that can't become a new strategy for you now to start visualizing dogs and, you know. <laughs> it arose through direct contact. Right? Insight that is truly transforming is our own. Sometimes it might show up like that, sometimes shows up very differently. Right? Direct contact is the place that when the insight comes from that, it has an effect for us. And it's not about making the pain go away. Some pains aren't like that. Right? It's not saying that all pain means that we're not paying attention properly. It's not so simple as that. But a large part of the Dharma pain that arises for us is of a nature that we can learn and understand something. It can forge us. We think the pain has to go away. But if we let that be the teacher... It can meld us, shape us. We're the one that changes in the process, in that fire, in that heat. So let's sit for a moment together to end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.